Thank you for joining us for the Voices for Nature podcast with Chris Gambian and Jackie Mumford. Welcome to the Voices for Nature podcast. I'm Jackie Mumford. And I'm Chris Gambian. Today, we are continuing our discussions with members of the New South Wales Parliament and the Crossbench. That's right. Uh, And today, we're really excited to speak to two members of the Upper House of New South Wales Parliament, uh, who both play a crucial role uh, as crossbenchers. We'll be speaking to Kate Fairman, who's a member of the Greens uh, and sits um, in the Upper House representing the Greens, and Independent MP Justin Field. Now, both Justin and Kate will be very well known to a lot of people who are listening to this, uh, and in particular, Kate would be well known as a former CEO of NCC, a predecessor of mine, and Justin himself also a a former staff member at NCC. So hope you enjoy these discussions. So lovely to have you here, Kate. Uh, I'm sure a lot of our supporters will remember you from your days at Nature Conservation Council, so it's lovely to see you again. Uh, really interested to hear a bit about your journey from CEO at NCC into politics. How did you how did you end up there? Yeah, well, I was actually involved in the Greens before I started at the NCC. So I um, had been managing um, kind of election or involved in election campaigns as kind of like a campaigner and a media advisor from Victoria to New Zealand, South Australia. And I ended up in New South Wales to work on the 2003 uh, state election campaign, was always going to move back to uh, Victoria at the time, which was my home at the time anyway. Got involved in the Greens here, met my partner, current partner still, Paul Sheridan, and uh, started working then for Larry Annan as a media advisor. Then I, when I did get offered the job as Nature Conservation Council CEO, that was amazing. I quit the Greens. I said, I've got to be uh, really, you know, um, objective here, nonpartisan, was head of the NCC for, for four years. Then I just ran for the casual vacancy that was created when Lee Rhiannon ran for the Senate and uh, got that and then kind of moved on in. Obviously, I had rejoined by that time and uh, moved into um, state parliament. And I'll tell you what, it was a really good basis to start as an MP here in New South Wales. I got the environment portfolio off in Cohen and to have had that four years kind of working really at the coal front with so many communities was a was a very good um, a bit of life experience before I got in this place. Yeah, well. Kate, um, there's a lot to love about nature in New South Wales. And as you've said, you've, you've actually spent a fair bit of time all around the place, not just here in New South Wales. Um, but what are some of your kind of your the places you keep going back to, the sort of places that you love the most around New South Wales? Yeah, I really have a spot, soft spot for Cozzy in the summer. So I'm not a skier. In fact, I've had a hideous skit like a ski accident and I've just kind of haven't really got back on on skis love the kind of alpine country in summer is absolutely beautiful so I go there a fair bit Um, I really love Mungo National Park as well it's just such stark contrast I can't believe we have such a huge variety of landscapes and ecosystems here in New South Wales it's absolutely extraordinary then of course there's like Nightcap National Park just the beautiful kind of Gondwana rainforest area of northern New South Wales, one of the most biodiverse places in the world. 
Um, it's just, and the history of it as well in terms of how those fantastic people in the north uh, saved that incredible area. So, yeah, they're kind of the spots. Everybody loves Royal who lives in Sydney as well. Uh, having said that, I reckon this weekend is going to be nuts. In Royal, everybody's <laughs> going for their first bushwalk. Um, Absolutely. But, yeah, beautiful. Yeah, there's just so much to love about New South Wales generally when it comes to nature and national parks. Jackie yeah. and I are heading north in a couple of weeks' time um, now that lockdown is over, as soon as we're allowed into regional New South Wales. And so it's going to be exciting to see some of that. Haven't been there for a couple of years, so I think it's going to be great. Yeah, yeah, I can't wait to get back out into nature. Yeah, I can't wait either. And Kate, you have a pretty unique perspective just from what you were saying before about your journey into politics. You know, at, at NCC we are, you know, fiercely nonpartisan and ideally what we would like to see is a race to the top on environmental issues from all sides of politics. Um, just keen to hear a little bit about that sort of inside track versus outside track, given that you have that, you know, experience outside the tent trying to push the politics and now you're there in parliament. Um, could you just share some reflections on that and what you see as kind of um, the key sort of differences in, in your ability to affect change? Yeah, there's, a, there's an interesting kind of relationship as well, I think, between the NGO movement and the Greens. Like I've been a been, you know, very, very heavily involved and so loyal to the Greens. But then as soon as I kind of got to the NGO, environmental NGO world, I was very careful to be quite um, removed from the Greens and not seen as um, a Green, if you like. I don't think, if you think about, say, the Labor movement and Labor um, obviously, we're not, um, we don't have a formal uh, wing, if you like, of the NGO movement, but I think there's a little bit more criticism of that. So that's interesting. I got a very good understanding at NCC of how important it is to be able to really like have a strong movement and be able to demonstrate to, you know, whoever's around the cabinet table with the environment portfolio that we are a strong and very powerful kind of movement, the importance of continuing to organise protests, the importance of lobbying, um, all of that. And I got, I got a big insight then into, to be honest, just how much uh, across the political spectrum people kind of do care about the environment, like politicians, like from all persuasions, although potentially one party probably needs to care a little bit more and that would be the nationals. But, but politicians from all parties do actually care a lot about the environment and it's kind of more the path that we take to get there and unfortunately also the influence of vested interests. So, yeah, from an insider's perspective, you know, I look out and see, okay, NGOs play a really, really, really important role uh, in making MPs in this place aware that there is an issue. If NGOs in the community aren't speaking out about a problem, the politicians aren't going to act on anything. Like mm. that, that's absolutely fundamental. Yeah, hey, right. My introduction to NCC was at the time you were CEO um, when you organised the Walks Against Warming. Um, can you tell us a bit about... Um, uh, that time, because that was a you know, quite a different time in terms of the climate debate. Um, and how did it happen? How did how did you manage to turn that number of people out um, for you know what I think will go down in history as some of the most important moments in the climate movement in New South Wales? Yeah, this came about 
fundamentally, I started at the NCC, was very surprised at the lack of climate action taking place at New South Wales at a time when there was this this increasing focus on the Howard government not wanting to sign on to the Kyoto Protocol, the influence of um, the fossil fuel industry kind of lobbying around greenhouse policy um, at the time. There were four corners exposés on just how much influence that these vested interests have. Um, but there wasn't really any actions taking place. So I'm a strong believer in the fact that unless you see people out on the streets calling for action around particular issues, then it's not really a big, um, it, it's not going to change things politically. If you think about that all the movements, uh, the big change that we get, there is always action and protest on the streets. So there wasn't anything happening with climate change. And I'm like, we've just got to create, we've got to create a big rally. We've got to, we've got to get that movement happening. So there were two parts of it. First was protest. The first uh, street march that we organised actually had a few thousand people, which we were pretty proud of. That was in 2005. We had um, 2006 was the, um, the 2007 was the Al Gore kind of era. 2006 was when it was getting kind of really big. I think I got that wrong by a year. Um, the other really- yeah, I think you do have it out I by think one, one year. 2006 Al Gore, wasn't yeah. it? And then 2007 was the federal election with Kevin Rudd. That's right, yeah. So 2004 to five was when we also recognised, okay, to create a- you know, one person doesn't create a movement, a handful of people don't create a movement, really, like you've got to go beyond that. So we said, okay, we've got to get like action groups started in places across New South Wales, so residence action groups. I did town hall meetings in places and basically talked about climate change um, with various other speakers and then said, okay, what's next? Start a resident action group, start a, you know, community group against climate change. So there was, um, that happened. So we at the NCC played a critical role in building what we actually called climatemovement.org.au and supported with resources, supported these groups starting from Bega to Balmain um, to other places around. So that was critical. So 2006 happened and 2006 with Al Gore happened at the same time, about six weeks out from Walk Against Warming. It couldn't have been more perfect. So we actually started getting mainstream media really interested in climate change. I remember doing interviews on Triple M, you know, Kate Blanchett went to it. We had something like 30,000 people in Martin Place. It was massive, 100,000 people across the country. Then from that following year, we deliberately made it political. We deliberately held it two weeks out from a federal election with a floating date. As people know, we don't know when a federal election is going to be called. So a logistical nightmare. But I have always been... Like some people do rallies without political speakers, right? I understand why they do that, kind of, but I firmly believe that that it's it's about, firstly, media will probably pay it more attention. You want to put those politicians on the stage and get them to, you know, put their money where their mouth is. And to be honest, they need to make those promises and sometimes it can get promises out of people. So, yeah, that's what we did. And, yeah, I, I do think it was incredibly important. Two weeks before the federal election in 2007, we had, you know, Peter Garrett, who was in Labor at the time, Bob Brown, um, other people kind of lined up front. It was the top news item on all of the stations two weeks out that 100,000 people have marched for climate change. So, yeah, you've got to start somewhere, which we did. You never know where it will end up, I suppose. Hmm. 
Yeah. And you've obviously been following the politics in, you know, New South Wales and the country um, around climate and nature for, for quite a while. What do you reckon these most recent changes in New South Wales government will mean for nature in New South Wales? Well, we have the, for the first time ever, we've got an environment minister who is treasurer, even uh, temporarily. So I would be an am, and am calling on Matt Keane to kind of put his money where his mouth is in terms of nature. He has been an um, environment and energy minister with a bigger fo- focus on energy than environment. We know here in New South Wales and indeed across the country where we have coalition governments with Liberal and Nationals, the Nationals are pretty much in control of everything that really matters when it comes to environment. Um, we know Matt Keane's in charge of national parks, but it's very difficult to get any other action at the moment because the National mm. Party is the National Party. However, with Barilaro gone and that that kind of, um, you know, him putting a line in the sand around koalas and the terrible Local Land Services Act, um, we've got a bunch of issues coming up such as private native forestry uh, that I... Um, sorry, private native forestry, uh, you know, the new codes. We need to wait and see what happens with this. But I don't know. I would like to think that with a new kind of, you know, National Party lineup as well, that these campaigns to get the uh, National Party to have another look, for example, at these types of things, I don't know. We've got a kind of campaign somewhere. But I don't hold out much hope until the state election in terms of getting any significant change. We've been calling, for example, for a Great Koala National Park, which is essentially transitioning a hell of a lot of uh, state forests into national parks for koalas. Of course, the Greens want to see a transition out of state forests um, entirely. Um, But that's not going to happen as far as I can see uh, for a little while longer. But with Keen as Treasurer, wouldn't you think that now this is his opportunity to just throw money at the situation, which would be look at what a structural adjustment package is for these forestry workers, you know, map it out over several years, of course, nothing's ever immediate, but this is his moment to mm. get something like this done. John Barillaro's gone. The National Party's got a new um, new leadership. I would be thinking that, yeah, Keane could really make his mark in the environment side of things um, before he actually hands that over. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm. Kate, there's a lot, um, you know, there are a lot of threats to nature, the risk of climate change, well, it's not a risk anymore. It's happening. We're seeing the impacts. We're seeing the consequences. Um, you know, we talked a moment ago about Mungo mm. National Park and, you know, the landscape there. But, of course, the big story in that area as well is the Barker and, um, you know, the fact that two summers ago there was no water in it. Um, and it's likely to be the case that there won't be water in there in the future. Um, there's a lot to be worried about. Uh, there's a lot to be angry about. Um do you ever feel like giving up? Do you ever feel like uh, it's too hard? And on the flip side of that question, what does keep you going? What gives you hope? Yeah, it's, no, I don't feel like giving up because it would be so frustrating to wake up and then not feel like you're doing anything about the state of the world and just be frustrated. So that that that's a big, that's a big deal. I also meet incredibly amazing, passionate young people who actually give me a hell of a lot of hope. You know, the past couple of years, particularly young women, kind of school-age women, and what 
their their passion and how smart they are about solutions for the future. We had a girls take over parliament um, uh, last week where I, you know, we did kind of different mentoring sessions with groups of um, school-aged uh, uh, young women. So incredibly, so incredibly um, inspiring, honestly. So firstly, there's this generation that is just going to shake things up so much. So that's exciting. That kind of gives me hope, if you like. Things even now in the lead up to COP, um, COP26 in Glasgow, yes, it's really bloody so frustrating to finally see, you know, like, yes, they all had to come over at some stage. Yes, it's a kind of, you know, it's a 2050, net zero 2050 target. We know we have to take so much more action. But what is happening in terms of the global conversation and even the national conversation now around coal and climate change is like, oh, my God, do we dare hope? that this is actually going to, something is going to happen. So you can't give up because the changes we make now, we haven't stopped, I don't think clearly, catastrophic climate change kind of happening, but the changes we make now could mean that we stop the very worst happening and we actually are then able to create a future that is okay. And I think those of us within the environment movement who have been here for some time recognise, like, there is the reality that things are going to get worse before they get better. Um, in terms of what gets me out of bed every day, I just get so, it's almost like the anger and the passion, like how dare they do this? You know, the, the vested interests and the National Party, for goodness sake, that continue to, you know, talk about propping up coal, that continue to to um, want to clear forests, continue to to sow this kind of division with regional New South Wales and farmers and greenies, if you like, that shouldn't be there. You know, they have just held us back for so long. So people like big miners, Minerals Council, you know, the National Party, those, the guys basically, largely, I just get so angry that I just want to kind of get out of bed every morning and go, no, I'm not going to let you get away with it, you know, and there's so many people in the community who feel the same way. So they say, oh, my God, thank goodness someone is in that place. I don't know how you can stand it, Kate, but thank goodness you're there. Thank goodness there are good people like you there. Thank you for kind of speaking out for us. And I go out to the community and say thank you for just fighting and campaigning so bloody hard the tens of thousands of hours that people put in for our environment, for koalas, for, you know, threatened northern corroboree frogs in Cozzy is ridiculous. That's what inspires me as well. And to be honest, that's the better part than the awful, you know, vested interest fat blokes in suits that I was talking about before. <laughs> yes, gosh. The, it's, um, it really is a place with all sorts of people, hey, in, in that parliament where you yeah. are there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess one part, of your, um, one part of your job does involve with, you know, working with people across different colours of politics. Um, how do you go working with, the, you know, the people that you have to across the spectrum? Yeah, so I reckon that's one of the kind of uh, almost the hidden secrets that people don't really like to talk about too much publicly is that we actually, a lot of us do get on really well and work together for outcomes. Like we get out publicly and we, you know, whack each other around their head a bit and then you'll see us working in committees and stuff and, you know, talking on the phone um, before committee meetings and just trying to kind of work out solutions 
to kind of complex issues, right? So an example is the inquiry that I've literally just reported on today into kangaroos, which obviously the government is just so far apart from where Animal Justice Party, the other uh, crossbench member is, and me as a Greens chair. But we actually kind of worked on, like, we didn't talk. We didn't talk before the committee in terms of you know agreeing on recommendations. But I kind of understood that they were trying to go as far as possible in acknowledging there was a problem. You know, they weren't coming and just going, no, no, we're going to block that, block that, or whatever. And actually, we got a really solid report at the end of it. Um, Penny Sharp from Labor was on there as well, and we kind of work together knowing, you know what, there is an issue. We're not going to agree on all of this, but there's a problem. So there's a, there's a problem in the way in which kangaroos are managed and there's cruelty issues and there's modelling doubts, you know, all this stuff. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we work together. We actually work together reasonably well. Having said that, um, you know, there's also times when you're just infuriated with how a debate or something plays out. But ultimately, you know, some of us can call each other some of us can call each other friends and there's really unusual kind of alliances across the the kind of party divide like Helen Dalton for example and I work very closely on water issues and you'll probably find us uh, spot us having a you know drink together at the end of a parliamentary sitting week sometimes too so uh, and that is not unusual across party. Hmm. It's good to hear. Hey this is a question we're we're asking everybody um, uh, which is for a lot of people, it can feel frustrating to um, get the attention of politicians, to get, um, you know, to get heard in the first place. Um, and on the flip side, you know, we do sometimes hear from politicians goes, you know, sometimes you don't make it easy to hear us, uh, to, to, to be heard. Um, uh, so what, what do you think um, your advice would be for folks um, to get the attention of politicians uh, collectively uh, or individually, um, and specifically in the case of the Greens, what, how does the Greens make decisions um, about issues? Like, how do you, how do you collectively sort of come up with um, the approach you'll take to a particular issue, or what you'll decide to make important um, uh, in terms of your program? Yeah, great. So the first one around um, how do you get MPs' attention? So I always think that environmental organisations kind of working together on particular issues all kind of coming together and saying this is, a, this, is a, this is an issue that I think we all need to agree to lobby these politicians about is always good. So there are so many different environmental issues going on across the state, whether it's like at a really local level or, of course, big global issues like climate change and, you know, water or whatever. But just that agreement in some ways, if there's a local campaign that they've just discovered that this is an issue, just trying to get, like, most of the NGOs um, at least identifying it and communicating to MPs. That's actually a really good thing to do. Also, uh, emails. Don't think that people are sick of getting emails um, from people. We have to... We look at all the emails, read the emails. If you're getting 20 or 30 emails about a particular issue from uh, the community, you know that there's a hell of a lot of other people out there who, um, who aren't writing emails who are concerned. So that's really good. Phone calls, the good old um, phone calls. We don't get many phone calls these days, so everybody emails. So phone calls are very good as well. The kind of old-fashioned things like letters to the editor, honestly, though I am surprised politicians still read the letters page. They all still read the letters page. 
Um, I'm kind of a bit like obsessed with, you know, what's who's doing what on Facebook and Twitter, but yeah, the letters page. So um, all of that matters, as does your, you know, Facebook, Twitter, I just, just raising awareness, also getting unexpected allies is really, really good. So we've always got this community, you know, people who probably are your usual suspects who are concerned about environmental issues, get a couple of local business owners and others to front that campaign. And I always um, recommend to people. In terms of the Greens, uh, how we make decisions, we have, um, you know, close 50, I think, local groups across New South Wales. Those groups can put forward uh, recommendations for campaigns or policy. We have an environmental action working group that meets monthly where we take different issues. If I get emailed, for example, a local issue across New South Wales, if I get that email and I think, oh, I think the Environmental Action Working Group should hear about this and discuss it, that's a way for the party to um, agree on something. We also have this, this kind of committee that is a um, conduit, if you like, between the party and the MPs to kind of recommend things as well. Every single state delegates council that we have, that we report back on our kind of priorities and any new things and we get feedback that way. Um, also, we have this really amazing policy making um, uh, process where all Greens can feed into the policy, highly consultative, some people might pick a take takes a little bit too long, uh, but it is incredibly democratic. And if you join the Greens, you'll be able to have a say in everything. So you have a say in everything if you want or nothing. It's <laughs> That's what it is. <laughs> there you go. There's a free plug for yeah. joining the Greens as well. Yeah. <laughs> hey, you've got your koala shirt on today and you've got some beautiful koala posters there behind you. And, you know, koalas are a really core issue for us at NCC too. And, um, you know, a lot of sort of flux in the policy landscape around protecting koalas. Um, what are sort of the next steps on on protecting koalas, um, you know, in terms of your priorities and what are some of the sort of um, key moments you think people should be getting involved in? Yeah, so we've got um, state, ele uh, state election. No, the first one is local government, which has been deferred so much, as we know, in December, I think on the 3rd of December, um, that we, um, with council campaigns, particularly in kind of koala areas on the mid-north coast and north coast. We're asking people to kind of get involved in that around koala plans and management and making sure that council candidates, if you like, run on a strong koala protection platform. That's the first thing for us. I think my sense is with where the government is at on this, I have heard that the koala strategy has, the new koala strategy has potentially been paused um, that koala protection is being increasingly focused on acquiring particular land that may be koala habitat. I think the government from that might be giving up in terms of trying to, I don't know where the changes to the Local Land Services Act that have to come before the parliament as well as the changes to the private native forestry uh, code, they have to come before parliament. I haven't heard anything. Obviously, COVID has kind of slowed the, um, that down. What I can say for sure is that the campaign to protect koala habitat in New South Wales um, hasn't stopped. We've got the Great Koala National Park campaign. I think we need to be campaigning very strongly for transitioning uh, state forests, you know, into, into um, national parks, particularly in that Great Koala National Park area. 
Um, we've got to tighten up the land clearing codes. That's a massive campaign. And I think, to be honest, that will be a 2023 state election campaign. We know that Labor, for example, are also appalled at the changes um, under the Liberal National Government to our Native Veg Act, to the land clearing laws. So for me, given it's, where are we, October 2021, we are now starting to build the campaign, you know, leading into 2023 around the basically threatened species, biodiversity conservation, koalas will play a big role. But we are still seeing so much koala habitat being cleared, like just piecemeal stuff, despite the koala report, despite the recommendations in that report that we can't afford to lose any more habitat, we are still seeing um, so much clearing being signed off, particularly when it comes to um, urban development and Campbelltown is a case in point. Hey, Kate, thanks so much for taking the time to chat to us. Really appreciate it. Hey, thanks, Chris. Thanks, Jackie. That was fun. Hey, Justin, thank you so much for joining us. Um, you are probably best known uh, in conservation movement circles at the moment um, for being the person holding together a fairly delicate coalition of people um, in the upper house um, when it comes to things like floodplain harvesting. Um, what's it like? What's, what's being an independent uh, in the upper house like uh, compared perhaps to uh, people in some of the other parties? Well, I've got, you know, some experience of uh, one party and that being the Greens. So I don't, you know, I'm not going to speak for the, the, the different feeling, you know, for those in other parties. But for me, it's been a, a bit of a breath of fresh air, to be honest. I get to focus exclusively on the issues, um, which is a luxury that not everyone has. And we couldn't all, we can have a parliament of just all independence. So I, I, I appreciate that's a privilege, but it does enable me not to have to worry and focus on internal management of party issues. I just focus on the issue and I focused on environment issues and, and, and water to a large degree has been a big part of um, my experience in the Legislative Council in the last few years and floodplain harvesting is coming to a critical time in, in sort of the policy settings. And yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting coalition, um, left and right wing crossbenchers, obviously with uh, the Labor opposition has meant that we can hold the line with the government and try and leverage that power to get better outcomes for particularly the Murray-Darling Basin and the Darling River in particular um, when it comes to what could be a pretty um, substantial additional take, let's be clear, of water that we just can't afford, particularly with climate change. What's that like? So you mentioned it's, it's a quite a broad coalition. You've got shooters, you've got greens, You've got animal justice, you've got labour, you've got One Nation, all sort of sticking together on this issue, which is, it's not an uncontroversial issue. It's probably one of the most controversial in the state at the moment. How do you do it? I mean, how do you, how do you align those interests and keep people kind of on the same track? Well, I'll be honest, Chris, I haven't necessarily um, done it. There there is a confluence of, of, of interests. There is a complexity here um, that has meant, you know, the role I can play is trying to help digest the complexity of this for the members and some of their stakeholder groups. Um, and the, the reality is that 
flood plain harvesting benefits a handful of very large corporate irrigator interests. Overwhelmingly, the benefits of getting this right, of ensuring that when it floods, the water can get downstream for our rivers to be available for communities and to be available for other water users, including other water license holders and even irrigators. The overwhelming benefit um, is getting this policy right, not gifting billions of litres and billions of dollars worth of licences to a handful of large corporate irrigators. So the politics of this sort of makes sense. The shooters obviously have an interest in those electorates um, because they cover the vast majority of the, the Murray-Darling Basin in New South Wales. Um, you know, One Nation has had an interest here um, uh, in part because of how this has played out federally, in part because, you know, the concerns of the, the Southern Basin uh, irrigators, I think, has been influential in that discussion. Obviously, environmentally focused parties and members uh, get that we need to ensure the law in New South Wales that prioritises rightly environmental needs over consumptive needs of irrigators is actually put in place in water policy so this water should go downstream when it is needed not be harvested in upstream dams so that all makes sense and credit to the labor party who have stuck their dig on 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 this issue it, it is one of the few uh issues they really have come out and taken a, a a very clear position opposed to what's being put forward from the government and we've got this unique opportunity where we can leverage parliament and they've been prepared to do that and there's been some criticism from stakeholder groups in the government of that but, but they've understood and taken the time to understand the issues and taken a principled view um, and so they should have that credit too and and the role I play not having any particular power uh, don't have the balance of power uh, I've just spent the time really understanding the issue and talking to people. The upper house is a rarefied environment. Um, you got elected a couple of years ago. Um, talk to us a little bit about that pathway. How does how do how does Justin Field, the the sort of knockabout teenager who probably just liked going surfing, um, turn into Justin Field, the MLC? Um, are you the honourable? Do you do you carry the title? Um, uh, uh, who is making sort of important um, political decisions for the state? Well, I'm not the honourable officially. I'd like you are to very honourable, though. You are. You I like are to think I act honourably. <laughs> and I, look, I do take seriously the role, um, and I also recognise that in making a decision to leave the Greens and to sit as an independent, um, I had I had given personal undertakings to represent um, uh, the environment in, in my campaign within the Greens to, to fill the casual vacancy that was in the parliament um, uh, in 2016 when I came in. And so I've tried to be really true to that. But my, my, my background wasn't environmental. Uh, yes, I was a knockabout surfer for a lot of years and I like to still be a bit. Um, uh, you know, but people know that I um, I went to Duntroon through military college. I spent seven years as a uh, in the army as a an army intelligence officer. And my entry to politics really was um, me uh, developing uh, an opposition to uh, our involvement in the Middle East wars. 
And that was my entry point into politics, watching um, Bob Brown uh, advocate so passionately against Australia's involvement in the war. And then what I saw as the misrepresentation of our involvement by the Howard government at the time, that was my entry to Greens politics. But once I got involved with the party, um, uh, I, I became really involved in natural resource management issues. My parents' farm in Queensland, we had a pawpaw and mango farm. It was compulsorily acquired by the Queensland government to turn into a massive shale oil um, region up near Gladstone. And, and now that, that industry didn't go ahead, it didn't work, it, you know, it was toxic. Um, so they just used the area as the corridor for the LNG pipelines to run to Curtis Island. And my parents can see the flares from those LNG plants from their backyard uh, out on, on the island. So, you know, I, I have seen firsthand um, that juxtaposition of really intensive mining on regional communities and agriculture. And I, I keep getting drawn back into these natural resource management issues. And so coal seam gas, when I was working in parliament for Jeremy Buckingham, was a huge campaign. And it was really those environment campaigns that I guess um, built my reputation in the party, um, built my support that led to me winning the pre-selection to come into this place. And to be honest, I, I've just stuck with that. I, I've taken a path to ensure I can be as effective as I can in advocating for those issues. And I do that on water and forests and land management. Um, and I just keep getting dragged back into these fights because they are the most important fights. And they are the thing that a coalition government when there's the national party are involved um it, it's terrible it's the worst you know we are going backwards at a rate of knots on these things what do you think the change of government in new south wales or the change of leadership in the government means um for some of those issues that you're you're quite passionate about uh the jury's out because at the end of the day, the coalition agreement with the National Party means that there is often very little room to move, regardless of who the leader or the environment minister is when it comes to water, land management, native vegetation, um, forestry, all of those policy areas, um, the ministers are National Party ministers. And we've seen how the National Party can threaten to blow up the coalition uh, over these issues. Now, I have some hope. I, I do think that um, we have in the new Premier, uh, Dominic Perrottet, uh, well, we've got a fresh set of eyes. Um, I think we've also got someone who recognises their sort of more right-wing social um, uh, policy position in, somewhat, in some way needs to be offset. Um, and, and I'd like to think, given some of the things that have been said and done already, um, and with, with Matt Keane, uh, as treasurer, I'd like to think that he would probably soften that image, try to soften that political image by being greener. Um, certainly on climate change, the New South Wales government has, has taken a strong position. The actions are not quite there yet, I'll be honest, but the, the, but the policies and the rhetoric is good. But I keep coming back, Chris, to, you know, the biodiversity stuff, the, the, the real core things around natural resource management it is very hard for a Liberal Premier and Liberal Treasurer and Environment Minister to move the National Party. That is the barrier here. When you look around uh, this state, it's a big state, you live on the south coast, um, what are the places, what are your favourite places in New South Wales? 
Well, oh, yeah. My new favourite place is North Durris, actually. We've been spending some time uh, down there. It's only, um, you know, half an hour from my place. You know, I spent a lot of time out in the forest around South Broome and Shallow Crossing with campaigners. It's about uh, 20 cases of crow flies from my house, really badly affected by the, the, the bushfires. But, you know, we do live in a beautiful state. Its natural resources are, are its assets. I've spent a lot of time out in the northwest as well on the Liverpool Plains and, the, you know, the, that beautiful landscape uh, too really, really grabs me. Uh, look, you can make the most of, of the environment in New South Wales really wherever you are. Um, you know, but I am probably a coastie. Um, I'm, a, I'm a beach uh, person. Um, and, uh, I, you know, the south coast, coastal environment, our coastal lakes and our beaches are, are really just truly spectacular. Okay. I can't let you get away without asking you this one because everybody wants to know. But March 2023, your term expires. What's next for Justin Field? Surfing. Ah. <laughs> I think there's a lot of people listening who uh, will hope that you decide to have a crack at, um, at staying in the parliament. But, um, hey, thanks so much for taking the time to chat to us. Real pleasure, Chris. And thank you for what you've been doing, your leadership at the Nature Conservation Council. It is an absolute critical time for the environment in New South Wales. Um, unless we see a big change from this government, you know, I think we need a change of government if we're going to get a turnaround particularly in those natural resource management environment issues and the NCC and its member groups and supporters play a critical role in raising awareness and hopefully shifting the dial uh, when it comes to the next election in New South Wales. Thank you, mate. So that was Kate Behrman and Justin Field, uh, both really important things, you know, had really important things to say about the role that they play uh, working with, you know, both government and the Labor Party uh, to try and get better outcomes for nature. Um, it's, you know, it's quite interesting to hear that that important role that MPs play and the sort of inside track role uh, that, that crucial players can play inside Parliament, but also, uh, you know, how we as um, outsiders, if you like, or, you know, people in the NGO and activist um, space can work with members of Parliament um, to, to get better outcomes for nature. Absolutely. And if you think about the Parliament in the last couple of years, um, the best results that we've had um, for nature have been a direct result of the work of these two people. Um, you know, the, the politics around floodplain harvesting at the moment is really being uh, led, and I don't think I'm speaking out of turn, to say that Justin Field um, is very much uh, leading the charge there and holding together a really surprising alliance of people to keep that, um, that uh, uh, regulation in check. Um, and Kate Fairman on koalas uh, last year when, uh, when the bill was defeated, as, as Catherine Cusack herself said to us when we interviewed her earlier in the year, um, you know, she was one vote and she might have been the final and deciding vote, but there were all those other members that voted um, against the bill as well. And that was mm. because of the advocacy of, um, of Kate in particular and the committee that she led last year. So mm. um, we've got two good ones there. That's right. And it's so important to have champions inside parliament um, for our issues. So, you know, the importance of uh, having relationships with those MPs um, and, you know, making sure that they're really kind of wheeling the barrow of the issues that we care about and that the conservation movement cares about. So it's wonderful to have their leadership inside parliament on those issues. As always, you can listen to this episode on Spotify or, or Apple or wherever you get your podcasts or catch us on YouTube. 
Um, and if you like our work, if you can afford a few bucks to chip in and keep us going, uh, it'll be very much appreciated because... Koalas grow in trees, but money does money, not. Money definitely does not. So no. thanks so much, everybody. We'll catch you next time. Hopefully, uh, our next interview is going to be with Matt Keane, uh, now Treasurer of New South Wales. And uh, with any luck, um, he'll be able to uh, be a strong advocate for the environment uh, in this new capacity. That's right. Thanks, folks. Thank you for joining us for the Voices for Nature podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, head to our website, YouTube, or your favourite podcast player to find more.